Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. And welcome to this episode of the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. You know it, the podcast where we talk about books and movies. And today, specifically, we're talking about a very short novella and a very long movie that was made from it. It is kind of a holiday movie, kind of not. I'm sure we'll discuss the hows and whys and ifs and that's in a minute. But first, real fast, just a quick reminder that you can find all of our show notes and our past episodes and links of ways to support us on Patreon or buy us a coffee on our website, which is kmmamedia.com. You can also just type in Pages and Popcorn Podcast into any search bar at Facebook or Twitter or, you know, Google or Bing. I'm sure we're there. So you can find us in all the different ways. You can also find us on Instagram, kmma underscore media is on Instagram. I am on Instagram. I'm on TikTok, kind of. It's a thing. There's lots of social media places. We hope you had a wonderful holiday. This episode will drop after the Christmas holiday, after the Yule holiday, after Kwanzaa, and after Hanukkah. Hanukkah's over as well. So we hope you had a wonderful holiday season, and you're going to have a safe and wonderful New Year's Eve and New Year's Day as we head into 2022. Very exciting. It's going to be a good year. We go into this year with our eyes wide open. Actually, we're going to go into the year wise wide open so that we don't bump into things and let us let us begin. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? That was a very cute, if ridiculous intro. Well, you know, <laughs> that is how they describe me in these parts of the woods, I think. Cute and ridiculous. <laughs> if you find me super annoying, you're probably not still listening to this podcast. So uh yeah there you go (laughs) okay i have to real quick before we even start the recap today say thank you to listener laura who informed me that i said farnell for the entirety of the grinch podcast and i apologize i i could blame my eyes and the fact that i've never actually said the name out loud i've just been like oh yeah the guy who sings happy um without really thinking about it but i do apologize thank you laura and I'm going to do my best today with all these wonderful, fun German names. So wish me luck. And please know that my intent is not to mispronounce, but to pronounce appropriately. Okay, here we go. The book was originally not called Eyes Wide Shut. It was called Rhapsody, a dream novel, also known as Dream Story. It was translated from German. It was by an Austrian writer named Arthur Schnitzler. Was first published in installments in the magazine Die Dame between December 1925 and March 1926. The first book edition appeared in 1926. And here is the recap. It is set in the early 20th century Vienna. The protagonist of the story is Fridolin, 
Fridolin. I'm going to say Fridolin, right? Okay, she's nodding. That sounds correct. Okay, Fridolin. The protagonist of the story is Fridolin, a successful 35-year-old doctor who lives with his wife, Albertina, and their young, unnamed daughter. One night, Albertina confesses that the previous summer, while they were on vacation in Denmark, she had a sexual fantasy about a young Danish military officer. Fridolin then admits that during that same vacation, he had been attracted to a young girl on a beach. Later that night, Fridolin is called to the deathbed of an important patient. Finding the man dead, he is shocked when the man's daughter, Marianne, professes her love to him. He is titillated by the offer and also kind of upset about the thought of his wife, and he is flummoxed, restless. Fridolin leaves and begins to walk the streets, and he thinks about hiring himself an evening companion, a lady of the evening. He goes as far as to end up in a room with a prostitute named Mitzi, but at first he stumbles. Then he feels weird. Then she, quote, resists, so he backs off and leaves. I'm sure we'll talk about it. He encounters his old friend, <sighs> Natrigal. Natrigal? Natrigal. Um, yes, the German word for nightingale, Natrigal, who tells Fridolin that he will be playing piano at a secret high society party featuring naked women that very night. Intrigued, Fridolin begs to go along. Natrigal says that the password is needed and even he is not told about it until the coach arrives to take him to the party and together they work at a scheme where Fridolin will go get a costume and a mask and then get the password from Natrigal who will cause a delay and then Fridolin will follow the coach, use the password, attend the masked party. What could possibly go wrong? Thankfully, this is taking place during Carnival and there are places nearby where you can buy a costume. So, Fridolin finds a mask shop. He gets the owner to open it up. He finds a young lady and some young gentlemen in the shop. Something sexual is apparently about to happen, but the young lady is the mad deranged daughter of the shopkeeper who sends her upstairs and then gets Fridolin a costume. And so then he follows Natrigal to the party at a private residence. Fridolin is shocked to find several men in masks and costumes and naked women with only masks engaged in various sexual activities. When a young woman warns him to leave, Fridolin ignores her plea and is soon exposed as an interloper. The woman then announces to the gathering that she will sacrifice herself for Fridolin, and he is forced to leave. He is driven away and dumped in a nearby town. Upon his return home, Albertina awakens and describes a dream that she has had. While making love to that Danish officer from her sexual fantasies, she'd watched without sympathy while Fridolin was tortured and crucified before her very eyes. Fridolin is outraged because he believes that this proves that his wife wants to betray him. He resolves to pursue his own sexual temptations as revenge. The next day, he learns that Natrigal has been taken away by two mysterious men. He then goes to the costume shop to return his costume and discovers that the shop owner is prostituting his teenage daughter to various men. Eventually, he finds his way back to where the orgy had taken place the previous night. But before he can enter, he is handed a note addressed to him by name that warns him not to pursue the matter. Later, he visits Marianne, but she no longer expresses any interest in him. Then he searches for Mitzi, that prostitute, but she's been taken off to the hospital. So that's another dead end. He reads that a young woman has been poisoned, suspecting that she is the woman who sacrificed herself for him. He views the woman's corpse in the morgue, but he cannot identify her because he only saw her body and not her face. Fridolin returns home that night to find his wife asleep and his mask from the previous night set on the pillow on the side of the bed. When she awakes, Fridolin confesses all of his activities tearfully. After listening, Albertina comforts him. Fridola says that it will never happen again, but Albertina tells him not to look too far into the future. The important thing is that they have survived through their adventures, plural, as if she actually had one. And the story ends with them greeting the new day with their daughter. The end. Okay. And then in 1999, they made the movie Eyes Wide Shut. It's an erotic mystery, psychological drama film directed, produced, and co-written by the infamous Stanley Kubrick. 
Our first shot is a blonde butt, a very tanned blonde butt, very flawless butt of Nicole Kidman. This, along with the Austrian waltz music, really sets the tone, and off we go. Dr. Bill and his wife, Alice, live in New York City with their daughter, Helena. They attend a Christmas party hosted by wealthy patient Victor Ziegler, where they find that they know no one. But then Bill is reunited with a med school dropout who is now a planner player. His name is Nick Nightingale. An older Hungarian guest attempts to seduce Alice, and two young models attempt to seduce Bill. He is interrupted by his host, who's been having sex with Mandy, a prostitute who he calls kiddo, in might be one of the top five grossest moments of this film. Anyways, Mandy is that young prostitute. She has overdosed on a speedball. So Mandy recovers with Bill's aid. You know, he's a doctor after all. So his aid is calling her name forcefully and then giving her a drugs or bad lecture. Whatever. She is our second, but by no means our last fully naked lady. That Hungarian guy is really laid on thick for Alice, calling marriage a deception, talking about how women really want to fuck around and getting a bit creepy and bossy when Alice turns him down. The married couple go home and the song You've Done a Bad, Bad Thing plays while they have sex. Next day, Alice is doing mom things with the kid. Dr. Bill is doing doctor things. There's another set of boobs, but he also has a kid patient. And we get to see Nicole Kidman's butt again while she gets dressed bra first. The following evening, while smoking marijuana, Alice and Bill discuss their episodes of unfulfilled temptation. Alice is a mean, aggressive stoner and she picks a fight. The only reason that strange men were dancing with me was that he wanted to fuck me? How dare you? But like, I mean, yeah. Anyways, Bill tells Alice he doesn't want to fuck anyone else. She has this whole weird thing about how he can possibly not get aroused when doing his doctor job and blames him if a woman has sexual thoughts while he's doing his doctor job. And it is weird. And she's being a total brat. And she gets mad at him because he isn't jealous of her. He says he's not jealous of other men's attraction to her because he trusts her. So she laughs at him. And then, and then she discloses that during their vacation in Cape Cod, she encountered a naval officer and fantasized about him even while having sex with Bill and that she considered running away with him even though they never spoke. Bill is disturbed by this revelation, but then he is called to the house of a patient who's just died. The patient's distraught daughter, Marion, unsuccessfully tries to seduce Bill. Bill is very professional, calling it acting out in grief, and he leaves Marion with her fiancé, who, by the way, looks a whole lot like Bill. He is still having intense visuals of Alice and her fantasy lover. He's walking around trying to clear his head, and he's chatted up by a prostitute we later learn is named Domino, but in my notes, I called her purple prostitute because I don't think she was named until later. Whatever. They talk money. He agrees to her amount. They start to get into it, but during the kissing part, Alice phones, prompting Bill to have a change of heart. He pays Purple Domino for the sexless encounter and wanders off. He ends up at a jazz club that Nick mentioned at the party. And look, there's Nick. Nick and Bill have small talk. And Nick describes an engagement later where he must play blindfolded in events featuring these beautiful women. The invitees require a costume, a mask, and a password. Bill goes to a costume shop, bribes the owner to open it up in the middle of the night. Okay, so he's going to rent a tux, a cloak, a mask. Inside the shop, the owner is outraged when he catches his young daughter with two men. The daughter is very, very young and very weirdly flirty with Bill, but Bill is on a mission and can't be distracted. He gets the costume and still having visuals of Alice and her fantasy lover, he sets off. He takes the taxi to a country mansion mentioned by Nick. He gets the password, discovers a sexual ritual is taking place. Everyone is wearing masks. The ritual is one red-robed dude with an incense burner thing in a circle of black-robed and masked women with dozens and dozens and dozens of spectators. 
There's chanting. There's weird organ music being played by Nick in a blindfold. There's a note about the song that's being played. We will talk about it. Suddenly, the black cloaked purple in the circle drop their robes. They're all mostly naked, still in mass with tiny G-string things and nothing else. The chanting continues. The singing is in another language. The mostly naked masked women pantomime kissing one another. There's a slow pan to a few random spectators who seem to nod at Dr. Bill. The kiss pantomime is done and the red robe dude is releasing the ladies from the circle. Some of them move off to find other people in the crowd. They pick random spectators. There's a pantomime kiss and then off the pair goes. One of the masked women is a huge headdress mask, picks Bill and then warns him that he's in terrible danger. She knows he doesn't belong. She tells him he has to go. She warns him about the danger again. And then another man comes and takes her away. Dr. Bill wanders around watching all the orgies. There are lots of sex acts happening, mostly the women, but a few sex acts of men. And this is a lot of spectators for everything. How many people, men and women are here? It is really hard to know. There's a lot of shaved private parts, just to say. Another woman comes up to Bill and asks him to go with her. He's like, okay, but then the big headdress lady returns and she takes him away. Again, she tells him to go. He's in danger, she's in danger. There's danger, danger, danger for everyone. He wants to unmask her and she runs away and a servant comes and he gets Dr. Bill and Dr. Bill has been brought to the great hall where tons of people in masks are waiting they ask him to step forward they surround him they test his knowledge of the password he only knows the one to get in not the one to stay so they're like hey take off your mask and he does ha ha now get undressed he's like oh what the fuck no yes remove your clothes or would you like us to do it for you the big masked woman in the headdress shows up take me instead i will redeem him <gasps> everyone gasps are you sure yes she is sure very well, Dr. Bill is free. He gets a warning, any inquiries, and any word, there'll be dire consequences for you and your family. He nods his understanding. Bill arrives home, guilty and confused. He finds Alice laughing in her sleep and he awakens her. She tearfully explains a dream in which she was having sex with the fantasy lover she mentioned before and then many, many, many other men and laughing at the idea of Bill witnessing the scene. Note here, she didn't want to tell him her dream and she cries while she tells him but he seems to be unmoved by her discomfort. The next morning, he goes to the bar where he found Nick and he is surprised for some dumbass reason to find it closed in the middle of the day. So he goes and gets some coffee at a diner, chats up a waitress, he plays the concerned doctor card, and he gets Nick's hotel address because he is slimy. The desk clerk is super flirty and fabulous and spills the tea that a bruised and frightened Nick checked out hours earlier escorted by two dangerous looking men. Bill returns the costume but seems to have misplaced the mask. He learns that the owner has sold his teenage daughter into sex slavery. The owner pretty much offers her to Dr. Bill and it is super gross. That afternoon, still plagued by thoughts of Alice fucking the fantasy lover, Bill leaves his practice early to return to the site of the orgy. As he stands at the front gate, a man comes down to greet him, hands him an envelope addressed to him by name. Inside, it is an anonymous letter issuing him a second warning to stay away. Go home, and it's home and hearth, an adorable kiddo doing homework, and he's getting distracted watching them because he keeps hearing Alice describe her dream, and he is still oh, oh, so upset about it. Bill calls Marianne, you know, that lady whose dad died the night before. When her fiance answers, he hangs up the phone. Then he heads to Purple Domino's apartment, apparently having decided to consummate their affair. However, he is greeted by a woman who claims that she is Domino's roommate, Sally. There's obvious sexual tension between Bill and Sally, but she then reveals that Domino has received just that morning a results of a test that indicates that she is HIV positive. Thrown for a loop, Bill leaves. He's walking again after midnight out in the streetlights, just pondering his angst. He's always walking after midnight, searching for, well, I don't think even he knows, but wait, 
Is he being followed? Maybe. He tries to get a cab. No luck. The possible follower is staring. Horror movie ratchets up. He's clearly being watched. He buys a newspaper. Then the follower guy walks away. All creepy like. Bill hides in a coffee shop. He tries to read his paper. He sees the news about a beauty queen's death from an overdose. This sparks something in him and he heads to the hospital. He asks about his patient name from the paper. He's told that she died that afternoon. He acts surprised. And okay, Wikipedia, and I totally disagree what's going on next. But to sum up, he goes to the morgue. He sees the body of yet another naked woman and he stares at it all creepy for a while and it's super intense. And then he gets a call from Mr. Ziegler, the guy who did that big holiday party at the beginning. Remember him? So off he goes. And we're going to talk about this conversation a lot, but we can agree that Mr. Ziegler admits to being at the orgy. He tells Bill the whole danger part was a charade to keep him quiet and that no one has actually died. The lady in the morgue is just a coincidence. Oh, and Nick is just fine. He's probably back in Seattle by now. The confusion comes from the name of Amanda versus Mandy, but we are going to talk about that, I feel like, in depth. Anyway, Bill does not know whether Ziegler is telling the truth about anything, and he leaves. Returning home, Bill finds the rented mask on his pillow next to his sleeping wife. He breaks down in tears. He tells Alice the whole truth of the past two days. The next morning, they go Christmas shopping with their daughter. And in a crowded store, Bill really wants to have this conversation, and Alice finally, tiredly, agrees. They talk. To sum up, she says that they should be grateful they managed to survive through all their adventures, whether they were real or a dream. She gets the line, reality of one night, let alone that of a whole lifetime, can never be the whole truth. He gets to say that no dream is ever just a dream. She says, we are awake now. He wants to be like, yay, we're okay. We'll be okay forever. And she's like, oh, shh, shh, shh. Let's not say that forever word, but I do love you and we definitely need to fuck. The end. So, Kalia, was this movie or book worth your time? Wait, you, you can't get to the very end. So, I think you should both be retitled The Male Gaze. That is what they are in a nutshell. <laughs> okay. So... I don't want to skip okay. to the end, but. <laughs> but we all know the answer. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know what you're going to wear. Cause I, cause okay. People who listen to my recap sometimes get a sense of how I feel. Maybe just a little, <laughs> maybe they're slightly Kalia colored. They're as colorful <laughs> as your hair. My hair is four different colors right now. <laughs> yes. Um, so Jennifer, had you, had you, uh, obviously I think we'd both heard of this movie before this had you read the book before we discussed doing it no i no. i didn't even know there was a short story when the movie came out i remember there's a lot of hoopla about the film because you know there's a lot of sexualization of a married couple and actually but, in real life because at the time nicole kidman and tom cruise were married when they filmed this movie right so it just seemed like a tempest in a teapot and i was just like whatever let them enjoy their sescapades, even though it's now public, which is sort of interesting. And I hadn't watched the movie or read the book until you told me we were doing this podcast. Okay. Oh, wait, me neither. So that's fun. Okay. Because when this movie came out, I was 18. <laughs> so this movie was billed as like this erotic thriller, right? That's how it was touted. And I never saw it, but what, this is my impression of it was that it was Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise, married in real life playing the parts of a married couple who went to some weird sex party and then there was jealousy which is like 
three-fourths of the way correct because they don't both go to the sex party. But when I was reading the book and then watching this, I kept thinking, oh, she has to be at a sex party too because uh, the other thing I heard about, about this movie in the circles that I run in is that this is a great movie if you want to watch a lot of naked ladies be naked ladies. And so I was like, there's obviously a lot of Nicole Kidman. She must go to the sex party. But no, she does not go to the sex party there. But there's still lots of naked Nicole Kidman and lots of other naked ladies. And we will yeah, talk our about- first shot of Nicole Kidman is one, she's nude. And then two, she's on the toilet with her dress up. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. interesting first, shots. she's like in the closet and like dropping down a robe and completely naked. And then the next shot, she's in the bathroom. And I, my first note after, whoa, okay, there's a butt is, oh, that's not how you wipe. <laughs> because I'm sorry, that's not how you wipe. And, but I do think it's really interesting that we start off with, her, with, with him saying, have you seen my wallet? And her saying, do I look okay? And she is literally in the bathroom peeing and he comes in invading her personal space and she doesn't bat an eye, which on the one hand, I think is to show you that they're so comfortable with each other. They're a married couple. But my feeling is this is a man who doesn't respect her boundaries because you can be like, the best couple. And you can even have that relationship where you come in and you talk to each other in the bathroom. That's for sure. But the bat, but, but everything in movies is symbolic. Okay. So it's not, you know, exactly real life. And the fact that like, she's in there getting primping and getting ready, asking if she looks okay. That's like, that's her main concern. And he can't even leave her alone. You know, he's so, she's such not a sexual item to him in this moment that she, he can just walk in and be like, jabber, jabber, jabber while she's peeing. And his whole thing is about money. And like his character is definitely a symbolic consumer. And she is definitely the product of his consumption as are all women. Ah, okay. I took a different interpretation of that and that their marriage is so at that point of comfort, they don't even care about like bodily fluids in front of each other. I, I think that, I mean, I think that that's what we're supposed to get is that their marriage is super boring and mundane that, you know, but at the same time, I it's, it's cannot be a casual choice that he just, he, it's all about him and what he's needing and what he's doing. And she's literally just set dress. She's in the background and she doesn't matter in that moment. You know, he's, it, I, so I, I think it can be both, but I definitely was like already at the very beginning going, well, okay. So this is what we're doing. There's so much commentary on marriage with this that it is the comfort that you have, you know, in a long-term marriage because like she's had his kid. There's a lot of illusions that are gone after a while where all these other women that he sees from this point, except for his wife, are illusions. Yes. Well, and they're all very much about the fantasy and the lust and stuff. Now, I know we have so much to talk about this movie. I just want to, I want to make sure that we talk about the book a little bit too. So let's get the book stuff out because I feel like we just we just jumped right into to Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. The book is definitely a product of its time. Uh, it was written it, contemporary to, to to Freud, right? This whole the, the time period of when it was written, and so Freud did actually you know write to Schlitzner about this book and how they interpret sexual fantasy, and so th- they were compatriots of the time. Yeah, and and the book is very. Austria, very, you know, like of, of the very time. Vienna, Vienna, right. Yeah. You know, and the, the intro, did you, I don't know if which copy did, did you have an intro? I did not have an intro. So I had an intro in mind and it was fascinating. It was talking about the Jewish question and how, uh, these characters, uh, are like the, the identity of people in Vienna at the end of the Austro-Hungarian 
dynasty basically it's like ending and this is like the final throes of this world and it's definitely in decline it's like its last gasp so there's people trying to like assert control and like that 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 context of their reality and their culture was like is seeped in here and the the jewish characters and the characters who aren't jewish but the idea of the outside versus the inside and you know what is and is not accepted by society there's there's layers there that i found really interesting and so i I actually would tell you, Jennifer, I think you should read the intro to this book because it's it's really interesting. Yeah, Vienna is almost like its own character in the book. You can't read this book without understanding a lot of the history of plagues that happened in Vienna, that they had this very Bacchanal culture when it comes to opera and sexuality and celebration. But masks, specifically plague masks, are there for a reason. And that's because of the plague. So you have this intertwining of sex and death. And as you'll see, all of literature is sex and death, but that's part of why you have these masks and othering and you have this doctor character who has issues that we're going to get into. Right. And it, it's in, it takes place during Carnival. And the whole point of Carnival is that you could be somebody that you're not. And the princes dress like paupers and the paupers just like princes. And the whole social concept is that you treat the people as what they're dressed as. So if you dress up as an aristocrat, even if you're not for the purposes of Carnival, you get to act like an aristocrat and boss people around and people like toady to you and stuff. It, it, it's like this whole social contract to buy in to that fantasy. It's like a group fantasy. And it's, it's fat. We don't really have that anymore. Like we have Halloween, Halloween. and Mardi Gras, which are similar, but they're super not the same. And so it's hard for us to really even understand and put ourselves there. But I find the whole concept. Are you telling me that dressing up as a sexy Dick Cheney for Halloween has no repercussion from this Viennese Bacchanal celebration? I'm just saying that no one's going to actually treat you like Dick Cheney as you walk around your Halloween party. Let's be very clear, too, that that wasn't my costume. That was yours. <laughs> I <laughs> Never uh -huh. dressed up as a sexy Dick Cheney. <laughs> That's what she I just says. think it's really interesting that almost every single female Halloween uh, costume is meant to be slutty. I feel like that was definitely a thing. I feel like there's a lot of backlash against that nowadays, but that's a different topic. But yes, and, and, and part I did of use that, that is term deliberately because we're talking about female sexuality and how it is commercialized. Right. There, yeah. there is definitely an aspect, again, from a holdover of carnival that has made its, its way into Halloween where you're dressing up as like an extreme. So it's not just, I'm dressing, you know, more provocatively than normal. I'm dressing super sexy. I'm not going to be a nurse. I'm going to be a slutty nurse, not a sexy nurse, a slutty nurse, you know, all of those things. And it is, it's because Halloween is about extreme, extreme gory and death, extreme sexual, extreme, all of these things there. It's just ramped up to 11, as they say. So that, that is definitely a carryover, but again, no one's treating you actually like you are that thing uh, in the same way that, that they would. In I don't know. I think there are women who maybe enjoy the idea of being a sexual creature, but sometimes the consequences aren't so nice. Well, that can be true for any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. So but I am not victim blaming in this at all. I just want to make that clear. I'm just saying that it is an unfortunate part of society that if men go around nude, there are less threats to their life than there are to women. Oh, well, that is very true. We do definitely have a double standard when it comes to uh, sexual autonomy, nudity, self-assured, anything, um, and sexual encounters. So let's let's talk about the, the double standard here in the book. And, and you can say, well, it was of its time, unfortunately, that double standard. 
is still true today. I do think that things are moving, but it really depends on where you are <laughs> locationally, socioeconomically, um, and how um, obvious those sexual indiscretions, quote unquote, indiscretions are. But in the book specifically, the husband is super upset when his wife tells him about this fantasy that she had. And then he has to tell her about his fantasy and his is so much more sexual than hers to begin with their first couple because hers is like, I saw a man, he looked at me, I had feelings and I really wanted to go do something with him. I never did, but I kept thinking about it. His yeah, is- they're, they're kind of egging each other on. But yes, okay. And so to, to counteract that, she's like, I saw a guy, he looked at me. That is the extent. And then in my head, I fantasize. He's like, I'm going to one up you, bitch. I saw a naked young girl on the beach and she looked at me and we almost had a thing, but then we didn't because she, you know, blah, blah, blah. But now like in the person and his thing is naked and is, I wouldn't say in a dangerous situation, but it's definitely not being attended to. It was, it was much more ripe and, and available for lust. You know, it wasn't just a, a, a glance between two people in a crowded room. So it is, it is, he's one upping her and she's like, okay, great. Like, fine. We both had these fantasies. Let's go to sleep now. <laughs> like she's <laughs> super not concerned. And he's like, grumble, grumble. And then he can't get over yeah, the he gets idea super jealous. of it. And he's so jealous. So then like it goes on. And then the next thing that happens is, you know, this, this woman is going through grief and she kind of throws herself at him. And he's like, oh no, no, no. Even though he was kind of like, well, you know, she's pretty good looking, but no, 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 no. You know? Um, and it felt to me like when I was reading about that in the book, that his main problem was that the dead body was in the same room. Cause he kind of kind of fixating on that as like the reason why he wasn't going to do anything, but now he's all sexually frustrated. He goes out, he's going to hire a prostitute. The prostitute thing is really interesting. He first, he goes into the, with the prostitute, they go into the room, and he's raring to go. This man is ready to fuck a prostitute so that he has something to feel better about himself. He's actually done something exciting. His wife can keep her little fantasies. This woman takes off her clothes and sits on his lap. And suddenly he, his, his erection goes. And I feel it's because I think she reminded him of his daughter because she takes off her clothes. She's very childlike. She gets on his lap and he's like, oh, oh, but he can't, he can't quite mentally accept that that's what happens. So he's like, oh no, this is weird. Uh, let's just talk, let's just talk. And he starts to like feel superior over her, like thinking maybe he could like save her from her whatever. And so she's kind of like, okay, whatever. Then he's into it suddenly. As soon as she's not into it, he's back to being into it. And he starts to go out to her. And the lie in the book is that he was beginning to make love to her. She resisted him and he eventually stopped. And off he goes, he's all still sexually frustrated. And then, and then we go into the whole, you know, thing with the, with the costume guy who's, whose young daughter is also, so it feels like he, he, like a dream, the man is, is introduced to something. Oh, people have sexual fantasies. And then suddenly he is just seeing sexual stuff everywhere. And on the one hand, he's reading some sexual stuff into things. And on the other hand, he's just finding all the sex. And so you kind of have to wonder, like, is it always been out there and he just wasn't paying attention or is it because it's nighttime now? And he's like kind of outside of his normal parameters of life. And, and so this from a literary standpoint, it being at night is the dream time. Mm -hmm. And so we're giving up the rationality of the day with the mother. And this is when he can be sexually active and have, you know, the prostitute and this and that. My interpretation of this was 
at first, you know, he's having like all these women throw themselves at him. And then after the orgy, like he goes back and they're either not there, they're not interested. The daughter throwing herself at him. And then after the orgy, she's like, no, forget, forget I did that. So you can interpret that as, you know, she was in a moment of distress and now isn't, or that this is part of his fantasy scape. And I say fantasy scape, dreamscape, that sort of thing. Because every single woman in this isn't a true character. They're just aspects of what men label women. Mm-hmm. So there's mother, there's horror, there's maiden. There's the nun who saves them, who's also a prostitute. There's a lot of playing around with these sort of stereotypes, but they all are, you know, the seductress, the, the woman who sacrifices herself. I, I'm just going to throw in, because I didn't say it in the recap, but the woman who sacrifices herself at the orgy for him is dressed as a nun. That's the nun yes. that you were just referring to, just in case people are confused. And he, he dressed up as a priest and was saved by a nun because we want to be as blasphemous as possible. That's, I think, the point partly here, too. So I, I'm going to segue into a slightly different thing because of you said that. This book was considered pornography when it came out. The author himself was very sexually active outside of his marriage. He had like a diary that he kept from day to day. When he died, it was 8,000 pages. And supposedly he recorded every orgasm he ever had. So the author himself has has some baggage going on. And I know we do death of the author and stuff, but this is really related. I agree. Just say it. <laughs> yes. So there's this interesting thing going on with the male gaze, like I said, should we get into that a little bit? Because it is in the book. It is in the book. It is. It's. It's more so in the movie, though. Well, so, yeah, well you can hold I off. Mean, on we can it. touch on it here, but we're gonna. Okay, I feel like we'll get redundant. But um, so just to stick with the book for a little bit more, because I know we have so much more to talk about with the movie. Is like you said, yes, it was considered pornographic. It is. It is. It is risque for the time. But I will tell you, like reading smut nowadays this is this does not it's not smutty now but it was definitely smutty then you can you can tell right okay and the cover art of the book there's like a tit right there that's a nipple right there man it is the unfinished work by clint called the bride and it's okay not only is there a tit multiple tits actually but like the way that these women on this cover are positioned it is it is weird it is uncomfortable this does not look like the kind of orgy where people are having fun in fact nobody's looking like they're having a good time in this picture i'm just gonna say one of the things about klimt is he's a really interesting painter in a lot of ways and one of them is that he sees female sexuality as independent from that of men but a lot of his images are very uncomfortable like you could look at them and see them as beautiful in the painting of themselves but if they were real life they would be horrifying yeah and that kind of i mean it goes really well with this idea of fantasy because our fantasies are always more beautiful when they're in dreams and when they are fantasy once they become reality you know the mundaneness of a relationship or actually eating that cookie or whatever else it is like that you've been fantasizing about like the fan the reality can never live up to the fantasy ever i don't think and i think that's part of the point of fantasy yeah well uh so you know one of clem's paintings this woman's all like curled up with her knee touching her forehead and apparently that's a comfortable position to sleep it reminds me a lot of porn when you look at the reality of it 
it's a very pretty fantasy. It looks great, but the actors are in these super uncomfortable positions. They say afterwards, yeah, it's not fun usually because you're sitting there in this bizarre pose, you're getting cramps and sex in reality is messy. It's fraught with all sorts of stuff and fluids and whatnot. So there's the prettied up image that has nothing to do with the reality. Has anybody who's ever made a home movie will tell you that it, uh, yeah, it's not the same as porn. (laughs) Interesting. I'm just saying lighting positions, camera placement. You're right. It feels like we, we soften, we blur the edges or we, you know, to get rid of the things we don't want to see. So the focus is on the things that we do want to see. And that lends itself to the idea of fantasy. And, you know, because again, when you're in the moment, you can't soft focus. You, you, you're, when you're in the moment, you're not panning around and looking at different, you know, whatever. Yes. TLDR. Yes. There's a reason why Klimt is often seen on the book covers for this. And that's because they were, you know, like Freud, they were the intellectuals of the time Mm -hmm. and they dealt a lot with sexuality. So you you see this sort of cross-pollination. It is interesting that it was an unfinished and it's called The Bride. So we're seeing part of the painting, but not the whole painting, which I find fascinating because I feel like as an artist, when you make a painting, it's, it's one thing. It's like when you write a novel or you make a movie and if somebody were to take just part of it and then use that to represent, you know, whatever, I just, I, it's a very strange, and I understand why, cause it was unfinished cause he died. Right. You know, but because then you, and they're picking a very specific part of that painting. So it's not the whole painting. It's a very specific part. And because I'm an English major, I'm going to say this is symbolic of how the, the story goes. Cause he's not looking at the whole of their marriage or the whole of her, his wife as a person, he's fixating on this one singular part and describing a lot of meaning and emphasis to it and becoming obsessed with it. And it's just one little part. So there, there yeah, you, you could say a lot about objective objectivizing where you're seeing body parts mm-hmm. and not a face. And there's Kaylee going, there's a boob. Yeah, there's a boob. Uh, a lot of boob, a lot, a lot of boob. Okay. There's also this really interesting discussion of fidelity. So part of what the author says, or, you know, his, his mouthpiece is that women are naturally faithful. So he uh, shouldn't be worried, but then of course, all that jealousy comes out, mm-hmm. which, so that's, first of all, is a freaking incorrect statement that women are always faithful obviously this is why i know you know the author mouthpiece yes this not not we not we (laughs) for sure but that is it's because again like we talked about at the beginning of this little bit of our conversation the double standard of course women you know they want to be faithful they want the hearth and the home and the blah 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 and uh men you know don't and they need to go out and spread the words and And yet the idea to jealously guard women right well and also the idea that in this time like it wasn't uncommon for people to have mistresses and like that was a a kind of a social standing that's not just this culture but a lot if you don't have a wife and a mistress then you're not a real man you know you have to you know because of course you can't contain yourself and like you said the irony is of course and they're you know locking up the women and controlling the women and and stuff but but it's like they only they already understand that they wishful thinking of you know women only want this is really that society wants women to only want this which is a very different thing than women only wanting this so there's a great line in the book where the wife says that oh if only you men knew Mm -hmm. so there are there is a hint of understanding that's going on but what's fascinating is this idea of fidelity is fidelity 
only biologically, like physically straying away, or is fidelity also what you do with your fantasy, what you do with your mental life? What I think is interesting, and I want to talk about the fantasy, like the life, like what the levels of cheating. And I have a whole thing to say about that. But before we do that, you're right. The wife's line about if you men only knew, and then the next woman he encounters starts to like live that out. And the next woman he encounters lives it out even more. And like it goes, it's, it's starting the sliding slope of, and eventually we get into an orgy where he is like, oh, these women are super into it. And like, this one's even going to sacrifice herself for me, whatever that means, without the context of understanding that, yes, women might have these feelings, but they're still trapped in this patriarchal society. So it's not really freedom, right? Because the wife says, if you only knew what women really want, blah, blah, blah. The next person is, the, is Marianne. And she's like, okay, my, my father said, I'm going to be honest with my feelings, but she's engaged to somebody, right? So this is, this is for her, it's a fantasy to not end up with her fiance to like, you know, run away from her life or whatever, who knows what's going on. It's grief. Or at least one last fling. Right. Exactly. The next lady is the pro it's the prostitutes next. Right. And so, yes, she's very free with her love. She's a certain sex worker at a time when, let me tell you, this is not like nowadays where we have a little bit more empowerment of the ideas of sex workers. And there are definitely people who choose this line of work because they like it and they, you know, there's benefits, et cetera. This, this is probably not that. I'm going to take a, take a little hot take here. This one was probably had no other options. Here she is trying to, this is survival sex work, you know, in a very different way. And then we have the daughter being prostituted. The daughter being So now we have sex trafficking of like potentially a minor. So like even more extreme lack of consent. Then we get to the orgy where these women are being treated like you know, props and they're all just being used. And it's this whole thing. And he's looking at it like, look at these ladies, they're super into it. And like the reader's going, oh, hell no, man. So as, as his illusions are shattered with, you know, all of this women, you know, and, and the, the one control that the woman at the orgy has is again, using her sexual power or her to choose to be a victim yet again. So we have all different kinds of victimizations of women that he doesn't understand until it gets to that extreme. He doesn't understand that his wife is a victim of a patriarchal system that tells her she's not allowed to have a fantasy. He doesn't understand that Marianne is a victim of a woman who's probably like has gone from her father's house to her husband's house and has no autonomy in her life. He doesn't understand that the prostitute probably doesn't want to be a prostitute. He doesn't understand that the, the, the child is being sex trafficked and that that is bad. Really? He doesn't, you know, he finally sees that maybe this isn't cool when the woman's like maybe gonna die because she's finally taking power that's the that's the thing that kind of seems to wake him up but even then he's still like muddled about it and then he has his his wife's dream and that oh my god that just sends him sends him all the way over i think you made a really interesting statement that should be analyzed a little bit more mm. in a good way and that she chooses to be a victim that even if you're choosing it is still because of circumstance victimization. Yes. Yes. Oh, please don't misunderstand that. I'm saying that she's like there. No, I yeah. think that's a really interesting statement and a really powerful one because it's easy to look at, well, she chose the thing. Therefore, because it's choice, it's not victimization. Right. And that's not you true. Know, <laughs> you can choose to be married because that's maybe your only choice of very few options, right. but that doesn't mean you have great options. Right. Exactly. And, and speaking up at the orgy and volunteering herself is it's very convenient for the plot. It's never explained in the book 
why this woman knows or how this woman knows that he doesn't belong there and what her motivation, I mean, partly nobody's, nobody's motivations are expanded upon except for his in this book, for sure. But specifically how she even knows that he doesn't belong there and then why that she would say, you know, save him. It's not in a lot of ways. So he's always the center of these women's world. Oh yes. So this woman, she martyrs herself for him, even though we have very little idea of who she is. Yep. Yeah. And then that's just it. (laughs) And what starts this is his wife. And it's like, Oh, I don't own this person entirely. Mm -hmm. She has a world outside of my existence. And boy, does that just screw him over for the rest of the book. Right. And then her second you know, t- conversation with him when she tells him about this dream. Now in the book, I went into a little bit more detail in the, uh, in the movie recap, but in the book, her dream is super violent. Not only is he like martyred watching her have sex with all these men, but he is yeah, like he's crucified. Yes. He's tortured. He's crucified. He he's trying to help her at one point because she tells, I need clothes in the dream. And so he goes off to find clothes and then she doesn't care about clothes because she's having all the sex and he's off doing this thing and he's trying to help her. And then he's doing this and then he's weeping and he's in pain and she's laughing and she doesn't care. And it is pretty horrific. Now I will tell you as somebody who has a very active imagination and who has a lot of very vivid dreams. I have woken up and been grumpy at my husband because in my dream last night, he was mean to me while we were flying on an airplane. And he told me I just needed to like close my eyes and then I'd be able to change physics and fit inside my own suitcase. And I was like, that is not how physics works. And he was like, yes, it is. You're just not even trying. And I was like, you're an asshole in all of my dreams. Not true, but he was an asshole in that dream. My point is dreams are- You wake up grumpy with him. Sometimes, but usually I'm, I'm aware enough to be like, dude, in my dream. I, I've had those dreams uh, about my ex where I would wake up. I go, you know, you were such an asshole in my dream. And he apologizes. I'm like, you, you didn't do anything wrong. Why are you apologizing? I'm just telling you about my dream and it's not your fault. <laughs> Point is that we both have dreams about each other. And like, that's just a dream. We understand that, right? Okay. However, I will tell you that if I have a dream where like he's doing really awful things, right? You know, awful, awful. And it hurts my feelings. Cause I've had those dreams. Like he leaves me or he tells me he hates me or whatever, or whatever, all these bad things. Um, I tell him and, and I'm relieved that it's not true. And then we're both relieved that it's not true. And that's, that's kind of the end of it. It's not I don't know how to, to put it, but it, it's- He doesn't have to go off on an existential crisis. Well, thankfully- Because not that I know Wifey had a dream. <laughs> right? Because it's like you said, he, the, the idea in this book that the guy doesn't control every aspect of his wife is very much, she, she's allowed to have dreams. But my God, this dream is really fucked up, right? And like, I can almost understand being like, dude, that's, that is bad that you dreamt that. Like, that is a little disconcerting you know, maybe we need to talk about something. If she'd had that dream and that had set him off on his, because because that dream comes after his whole little first round of adventures. And then it's his motivation to finish his adventures, right? So let's get into this a little bit because this kind of goes back to the male gaze. So um, I, I'm going to read this from a thing just so I can say it in a concise manner. In feminist theory, the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world in visual arts and in literature from a masculine heterosexual perspective that prevents 
and represents women as sexual objects for the pleasure of heterosexual male viewer. So part of this, and this gets into uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a French existentialist, is that you are gaining social power by being the viewer. If you are viewed as the object, you are immediately made less. So the reason why this author isn't considered just some rando pornographer is because there are these elements that are a little bit more intelligent than just, I want to write about sexual fantasy. Part of the male gaze is that women, by not having a penis, are unable to be castrated. And so by their existence, women emasculate men. Uh. So when you look at the controlling force and men having castration anxiety, that castration anxiety is... Is this Freud? This is Freud and Lacan. Okay, sorry. Where uh, they talked about, let me get this word right, scopophilia, which is the act of watching. Okay. So part of having the male gaze is this fear of castration, which is very Freudian. Freudian's all about, you know, men fearing being castrated, being unequal. And so when you have a female that cannot be castrated, she automatically has something above a man when it comes to sexual power. Interesting. Yeah. So when you have his wife going, yeah, I was kind of fantasizing about this guy. She's in a sense castrating him and therefore he has this massive jealous reaction. According when to she has her yeah. dream, mm-hmm. she's pretty much crucifying him and there's nothing he could do about it while she's having all this fun sex. And so that's incredibly emasculating. That also goes into the culture of the time of him being a Jew. Lots of political issues there is a lot of othering of Jewish culture and Jewish people in the book or in the movie, which we will get to instead of, you know, him being Jewish, he's called homophobic slurs, which is again, castrating in a way, making him feminine, making him less of a man. So it's a lot of male ego that's being explored in this, which elevates it above, oh, this guy's just, you know, writing porn and stupid shit. There, right. There's some stuff that's actually going on that makes it more literary. Now, Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I like a good spanking. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I knew I could have phrased it better. It's just fun to watch your face. No. Okay. What I mean is I, I like it when the bad guys get in trouble and there's consequences and repercussions for bad behavior. I find it very problematic when the bad guys win. I don't want the bad guys to win. Okay. So in this book, It kind of feels like the asshole's winning because my God, his wife is so patient with him. Right. And, and she's just like, okay, she listens to this whole thing. She knows, she knows that she finally told him like something honest about herself. And then, okay, personally, I got to wonder how real that dream was. Or she's like, oh yeah, I had a quote unquote dream. Um, Let me tell you about my dream. Oh yeah. It happened when I was unconscious. These aren't conscious thoughts. And you can't really argue against it because it's a dream. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. So I feel like maybe it was or was not a dream. This is like, finally, she has a way to like stick it to her husband a little bit because he cannot control her dreams, even if he wants to. Right. And then he goes off and he does this thing and whatever. He dodges a couple of bullets. He doesn't sleep with the prostitute, apparently who has syphilis. So bully for him. And he comes home to hearth and home and whatever. And, and she's like, okay, like we survived. It's going to be okay. But I feel like we're awake and we leave dreams in dream world. Yeah. 
she's like, we're even basically because I had this dream and this fantasy that you can't control. And you had an outside adventure where you went to an orgy, almost slept with the prostitute, saw guys, you know, sex trafficking is so we're, but you know what? You're home now. So it's fine. And it reminds me of like the people who are like, Oh, I don't care who he fucks around with as long as he comes home to me at night, you know? And like, if that's your arrangement, that's fine. But I don't know if that's their arrangement as much as she's like, okay, we're even. And that's really fucked up because they're not even. It's not the same. What happened? There is to them? that thing about, you know, if a guy has an affair, how he's always paranoid that his wife is going to have an affair because she's got a get out of jail free card. Yeah. And so his paranoia is still just put on her. And it's all about his emotions being put on his partner. Yeah. And, and I honestly feel like if this was a legit couple, that they're both going to go out and, and do stuff like at this, you know what I mean? Because why not? They, they've kind of laid that groundwork in, but whatever. Now they're going to go off and be the family. And so he has no negative repercussions for his actions. Although you could ask, cause it's been asked on the internet. Did he actually do anything wrong? He didn't actually sleep with the prostitute. And in that time period, it probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal. He didn't actually participate in the in the orgy because well partly because he got stopped beforehand like he wanted to oh my first thing is how about if the roles were reversed and she's up in this guy's room and it's like oh i kind of thought about you know having sex uh okay but and she goes to the orgy that would have never oh no been accepted in the same way no not, never even now definitely not but yeah, yeah. so so whether or not he did anything or he thought about doing things. And so then that cuts us into, cause he was trying to get laid. Okay. Especially the second half of this book. He was like, she dreamt about me dying. I'll show her. I'm going to go fuck around. I'm going to go to this person. Oh wait, that didn't work. I'm going to go to this person. Oh wait, that's not working. Okay. I'm going to go over here. God. So then he's got a mad, mad case of the blue balls and he goes home and he cries about it and you know, okay, fine. So, but he was trying to cheat. Okay. He had chances. He, fucked up or didn't take him or missed his opportunity but he tried and he still didn't get it happen make it happen she actually had the fantasy does that count as cheating i really want to segue this into this into the movie because i feel like it's the same central question in both so the similar thing in the movie where this cheating versus not cheating and it starts off with them at the party and she is being hit on by this this man this hungary okay and i have to tell you Say what you will about Stanley Kubrick, but the filmmaking is really well done. It starts off with them equal. They're like the, the camera is, is stationary and the two of them are on the screen. And then like, there's a, this touching of a glass and whatever. And okay, he comes on way strong when he drinks her drink. I, I would have walked away. That is not going to work. That's not how I uh, get. Oh, okay. God. I remember when somebody got a little tipsy and decided it would be really cute to grab my ice cream out of my hand and start eating it in front of me in a very flirtatious manner. Yeah, that's me doing it to you. That's not someone doing it to me. <laughs> I'm the top, Jennifer. Yes, Mistress Kalia. Thank you. The point is, he lays it in thick at the beginning, but they're still they're dancing, and as their dance continues, and every he time taller. he gets taller and he's looming, and she's like, and when she's trying back. to disengage, he's being such an asshole. Oh my god! So it starts off like in this flirty way, and then it just gets more and more extreme, and it is super uncomfortable. Okay, 
but kudos to her. She like shuts it down. She's like, I've had too much to drink. I'm leaving. He's like, no, 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 whatever. Okay. Meanwhile, husband, Dr. Bill over there is getting like led away by these two young models who are like, la, 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 they're going to take you to under the rainbow. (laughs) And, but we don't know what would or would not have happened because he gets called away. Duty calls. He's got to go up and yell at a prostitute so that she won't die. The magic of Tom Cruise voice, I guess. I don't know. So a a bit of the thing, if you look at the background, that painting that was of the naked pregnant woman, that was Kubrick's wife's work. Yeah. Yeah, I read that. And it's in a very Clement uh, style Mm -hmm. of it. And again, it looks beautiful. In a bathroom. I, I, well, this is high-end bathroom New York, apparently. <laughs> but I thought like those, the juxtaposition of this naked woman who, yes, one, does not look like she's ODing in the least. No, she looks she like she's looks taken really, a nap. Really, this woman is really pretty, very sexually healthy and available and not in the least bit like she's, she's dying. sprawled on this chair, still wearing her shoes and with her with her beautiful shaved genitalia just out there for everyone to see and the breasts and whatever ziggler is like oh yes you know come come in she's she od she took a speedball and tom cruise is like let me yell at her like say her name a bunch of times tell her to open her eyes because apparently only a doctor can do that and now she's fine that's what i was thinking really this is the extent of your medical knowledge seriously um nod your head if you can hear me well she's saved the man who brings up the fact that he's a doctor and literally every single interaction he has with everybody else in this movie with i think the exception of where he ordered the coffee at the coffee shop where he read the newspaper everybody else he starts off with i'm a doctor i'm a doctor, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. it's literally it got to the point of being hilarious but okay so fine so he's <laughs> in there game with her and she's not gonna die her name is mandy okay fine so but his wife doesn't know that that's where he went she just knows he disappeared for a really long time they get home and, and he tells her i kind of had to go help the, the host but he's not going to tell her what i for whatever reason and then they have their sex right you know and then the score decides to play i've done a bad bad thing which is the only real modern song that we get and it felt totally very jarring to have that play because nobody's actually done a bad bad thing right yeah why was this song the music in this movie is really interesting the piano notes that get played when we're getting into horror movie territory were grading to the point i almost muted my my screen because it was so much and it just wouldn't stop and it was especially when it's being followed by that one aggravating Okay, yeah, the, the, the piano score, which I think is the point. You're supposed to feel like unsettled and uncomfortable, but I was like, this is so much. This, this, yeah, and piano uh, music. bad, bad thing. Uh, Chris Isaac, I think, is the singer for that. It is in a way jarring because it's the only modern music, but it's kind of poppy. And so it doesn't hit your uncomfortable just yet of, oh, that's, that's kind of an odd song to play. And that's what makes Kubrick a really good film director is it's deliberate. The deliberateness of, having something slightly uncomfortable but still familiar yeah and moving into more unfamiliar i just even i feel like i feel like because at this point of watching this movie everybody knows that at some point something bad is going to happen that that's why the song is here but it just it it felt it felt very strange to me but that's fine well that's also where we get the famous poster of you know it's mainly Nicole Kidman. It's her eye looking at the camera. And in the movie, it's the mirror. She's looking in the mirror. She's looking at herself, you know, becoming this 
I'm going to say a possession of her husband, you know, like she's there for him, blah, 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 you know. Okay. But she's also like, yeah, she's also looking at herself and how she interprets to me. It was like, you know, this is the whole crux of the film is he's close. He has no idea what's going on. He's sort of oblivious. And she's the one who has the most sort of self-awareness knowledge of what's going on. She knows her own fantasy. That's going to drive him nuts. And she's the one who's aware of all the possibilities because a lot of this is playing with possibilities. Yeah. I feel like in that moment, we see three different emotions go across her face. And I feel like we end on resignation. And Mm -hmm. so that I I do think that that sets a tone, you know, she knows her worth. She's the commodity. She's the trophy wife that's there. She can't cheat. She can't do anything. You know, she's stuck. That's what she is. She's a sexual object for her husband. And which is why in, you know, later on when they start actually arguing, okay, first of all, she got high real fast. My God, she took one thing and then she was there. And I was like, that's movie magic right there. Cause it, it should not happen that fast. But second of all, my God, she's awful. In the beginning of that scene, she's really, really awful. And she's egging him on. She's, tr- yeah. she's picking a fight. She's trying, she, and she has this whole thing about how a doctor and a patient if there's a, if it's a man and a woman, it has to be sexual and he doesn't turn it around on her, which is what I was waiting for. Like, I'm sorry, dear wife, Alice, do you get turned on when a doctor's examining your breast? Cause you're accusing me and uh, the women who I'm taking care of as a doctor, but you're not really putting it on yourself. And there is that shot of another beautiful woman and he's examining her. But also we also see him talking to a kid, you know, as a doctor. And okay, I'm sorry, just a little tiny tangent. What the hell kind of doctor is he? He sees women, he's giving them breast exams to make sure they don't have cancer. He sees a child, he makes house calls, he has an office, but he also sees like the premier freaking Mr. Ziegler guy who is like super fancy, but he's gonna be like got like a fantastic apartment for New York. Seriously, so he's a lot of money, but so he's a doctor of convenience. I I, dude, it made and he's also (laughs) one of his patients has just died. He was really old. Like these rich ass people, they have rich ass doctor, like established. He's too young. If he'd been in his 50s, I might have bought it. But then, like, why does he have a clinic? That clinic was not freaking fancy. It would just look like a regular doctor's. I was so confused. Whatever. And he also um, spends money like it is going out of style. Oh, yeah. He's throwing money everywhere. I feel like he's more middle class than he wants to admit. Like he's spending a lot of money because he wants to look richer. He wants to be like the Ziegler's in the world, you know, especially with like the way he bribes everybody. And then he rips a hundred dollar bill at one point with the cabbie, which is just shitty behavior. And yeah, I mean, I'm going to hold this over you because I have power over you. Yeah. He uses his money as power because he's a douche so this is just kind of a thing when it comes to trying to to adapt to a completely different set scene time place culture Mm -hmm. is in the original book he would have had sort of all these ends because of the culture and then when you transfer that to new york you wouldn't have the same access to people unless you went to school with them or something or you have a family history and it kind of falls apart a little bit yeah but one of the things that it seems that scene with Nicole Kidman like looking and at the mirror and you know that that eye of hers so one of the things with Harford is he just found uh, Nick Nightingale again and here's a person who was in school with him to be a doctor and then decided he wanted to do music it's just complete 180 it's like you know what you should do this more often there's freedom 
And so that's setting up a lot of these ideas of possibilities. Well, my wife could have possibly had an affair multiple times. I would have never known. She is doing this stuff that I have no idea about. Nick has this life that I have no idea about. What about me? And it's feeling like he's almost having this midnight midlife crisis for the next 48 hours. Right. Which I don't feel like he really starts there, but I feel like it might have been background noise so that when they have their fight, and then he leaves that he definitely starts his little and yeah i definitely felt like it was a midlife crisis thing too an improper jealousy fueled midlife crisis but also yeah, it's very narcissistic and ego driven because alice okay when she tells him about her encounter her fantasy it is very vindictive she is aggressive about it because she, she's like i'm going to take exception that you think that women don't have these fantasies on the one hand i feel you girl on the other hand because the first you're half, emasculating him well the first half of that conversation was her literally picking a fight and being a total bitch so like it's not okay you know i the whole thing is well really that's what i was saying like there's there's that issue of emasculation mm-hmm. and so that's her emasculating him and then later on you know well, he bumps into those jocks and they're like oh you're a fag ha, ha, ha. which is the main reason why people have issues with homosexuals is they are threatened with their own masculinity. Yeah. So there's an emasculation that keeps going on that was called out. I remember at the time of people say, you know, that's really not all that cool to bring homophobic slurs when you're doing this particular thing. Well, that's the thing that's going to make him feel less of a man is because he's getting taunted and they couldn't just call him short even though he's Tom Cruise and they could have totally just called him short, <laughs> but they had to like lay and oh my God, it was so over the top and ridiculous that those guys were were harassing him in that particular way because there's yeah, nothing there's like no reason for it they're just about walking him. on the street well oh, you and it's, it's not just okay, why why would you say that word but it's it's not Sorry. that he he doesn't he's not presenting any way he's not in that kind of a neighborhood he's literally like a rich guy in a suit walking down the street so i mean again it's like these levels of extreme everything's extreme alice's reaction to everything he says in their fight is extreme the, the guys are extreme. The woman whose father has just died coming on to him. It's very, everything is over the top. And, and he kind of slides into that extreme aspect as well, because he doesn't start that way. When Marion comes on to him next to her dead father, he's very professional. He's like, you're very sad. This is a thing. It's okay. But then he leaves and he starts to like, obsess about the wife and obsess and not, you know, f- and feel uncomfortable. And then we have the whole, prostitute thing you know it just goes and goes and goes interesting side note everybody has red hair or red-ish hair <laughs> even marion like all the women and his daughter so like you know you talked about how in the book all the women are basically aspects of one woman and it's the same in the movie it's all the women are aspects of the same idea of femininity or different okay. aspects but it's all the, one the thing. costumer and his daughter because she originally is another one to tempt him mm-hmm. while she's having this weird thing with these two guys who are dressed in makeup and all this stuff and they're having a little menage Menage situation going on yeah and then she's flirting with him like she isn't a trafficked 17 year old prostitute but she kind of is yeah it was just it was so bizarre to me of and then the next day oh it's fine it's fine it's fine oh not only is it fine we worked on an agreement so that these men could pay me to to sleep with my daughter but also if you ever want to come over and sleep with my daughter Oh yeah, it's it's totally an option. Well, dressed up like a woman, 
maybe. to sleep with my daughter or whatever they were doing. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it was some very yeah, strange. It was something. I don't think it's trans- not to kink shame, no. but the whole prostitution of an underage girl is the problem. I think that that is an aspect that didn't translate particularly well from the book to the screen. I feel like there was some cultural stuff that just kind of, especially when we, the, that daughter, her, she has one line, that actress, she says, you know, hello. That is the extent of her dialogue. <laughs> Otherwise, she's there to be pretty in lacy underwear. Yeah. Um, so Schlitzner, one of his things in his writing is you'll see um, bedroom farce, which is a sort of sort of slapsticky, you know, husband and wife arguing and doors get slammed. And so it's a scene that's meant to be played for comedy and it's uncomfortable at the same time. Yeah. It's not nearly as uncomfortable as it should be. Yes. Yeah. And again, because there's no consequences, like he's like, oh, well, no, I don't want to have sex, with, you know, but but Dr. Bill is just like, oh, you're you're handing your you're offering your daughter to me. And then his face is like, well, that's interesting. Moving on. I have places to go. Like there's no there's no. Consequences. Yeah, I, I see you trafficking your daughter here, but that's fine. I have an orgy to get to. Yeah. To, to, to go try and find. Oh my God. And then the orgy, which, okay. I said in the recap, I'd mention it, but the chanting is actually an Romanian prayer done backwards because they wanted to make this as blasphemous as possible with all of the, with all of the trappings of this ritual. And you have, it's, it's, it harkens back to very Catholic with the swinging of the incense, you know, um, but then there's the pantomiming it's, it's looks very satanic, at the same time, it's, it's, it's a lot and it is more occulty in the movie than it was in the book. In the book, it was more about, you know, the people were dancing and the women were wearing their masks. The movie decided to make it super, super occulty and satanic. And then to go really into this orgy aspect, which again, like you've mentioned already the male gaze, but a lot of the sex acts that are happening are women with the other women, or they're literally on tables multiple times on different tables being watched by all the people. Or they're very posed. There's like these two women who are sitting next to each other, like an art piece. Yeah. And, and a lot of it, not just posed, but just, it's very performative because, and there's just all of these spectators. So it doesn't feel like there's an even number of men and women, but also there's obviously more women than we're just in the middle of the circle at the beginning, because there's women who are having sex in all these orgy rooms. And then there's the women who are dancing and then, you know, they go back in and there's still more spectators to surround him when he gets called out for not belonging. And we have our, our mystery woman in the headdress who again instantly knows he doesn't belong somehow and then she's gonna rescue him i guess now is as good a time as any to talk about it did you think that that woman was the same woman that had quote unquote od'd in the bathroom i didn't think she was the same but it's kind of hard to tell and i feel like i'm also getting into that really bizarre territory of well did her boobs look the same and both scenes. <laughs> so, okay. I feel like, I feel like it's meant to be a little bit ambiguous because, okay. Okay. First of all, I got to lay in here. Our doctor is, is totally fine with pretending and using his doctor stuff as privilege and his money to get places. I'm a doctor. Let me in. I'm a doctor. I have a patient. So-and-so was my patient. The way he gets into the costume shop is he says, 
this is the home of my patient. And the guy running the costume shop's like, that guy has not lived here for like a year. And I'll just pay you. Yeah. To, so Dr. You know. Bill bribes him and gets in. So I have to wonder, was his patient really there or not? Like, is he, because I feel like he's not above lying about be, having a patient or blah, 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 to get into places to use his doctor cred to get what he wants. Okay, fine. So after he is followed by the creepy guy, he happens to look at the newspaper. He reads in the newspaper, there's an article that a dead, like a former beauty queen has been found dead of drug overdose in her hotel. And her name is Amanda Curran. Okay, Amanda, not Elizabeth, you know, but it's definitely Amanda, which we all know is the longer version of Mandy. Okay, fine. But maybe, maybe not. So then he goes to the hospital. He says, I'm here to check on one of my patients, Amanda Curran. Now, either he was like, oh, this newspaper about this dead person, whatever, made me remember that I had encountered Mandy earlier and sent her off to like, hopefully to get help. And so now I should go check on her. No, that doesn't make sense because he doesn't know where she was. So the only thing is he has to be lying that Amanda Curran was his patient. Why else would Amanda Curran be his patient, right? She's not his patient. He's lying, especially because then they're like, oh, she died this afternoon. And he's like, oh my God. So then he goes to the morgue to look at her and to try to figure out who she is. What, that's why he's there, right? To figure out who she was because he thinks that that's the woman who saved him. And the only reason he thinks that that's the woman who saved him is because a woman saved him and then a dead beauty queen is dead. But the fact that Amanda Curran is the same and, and that Mandy was the other one's name. So then he's talking to Ziegler and Ziegler is like, oh, he basically said that they're not the same person, that Mandy was a different person and that Amanda Curran would have well, just Ziegler's died. Ziegler's gaslighting him Anyways, hard. Right. And so, but you can't trust Ziegler. Oh my God. It gets confusing. And then you read online and people are like, well, obviously Mandy is the same as the mystery woman. And, and people think that that is like, the, she's the same person because otherwise, why would she save him? That's her motivation for helping him is that he quote unquote saved her or helped her earlier when she had OD'd, which again, I don't think he did much to her to help her, but also how would she recognize him? <laughs> ah, it gets so confusing. So then I have, feel like I have to look it up and the mystery woman is played by one actress. Mandy is played by a different actress and the voice of the mystery woman is a third actress. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's meant deliberately to be ambiguous. Yes. But like he opens up his newspaper and lucky to be alive. Mm -hmm. Right in giant print. Mm -hmm. Very subtle, Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are some like little subtle scenes of that that I do want to take note of is that again, talking about Kubrick, he is very, very careful with his filming. And so when he walks into that coffee shop, there are two pre-Raphaelites. One of them is a redhead, Ophelia, right before she drowns. The set design and the set dressing was really, really good, except when it wasn't. I <laughs> I, I mean I I kept thinking, is this, this is New York? It doesn't look like New York. And I know that they recreated parts of the village in, you know, basically in England because Kubrick doesn't fly. Wow. So that's why they had to film this all in England, even though it's supposed to be in New York. And I kept thinking, why not just set it in London? Oh my God, but whatever, fine. It would have actually probably made more sense, but whatever, it's okay. I just think it's really fascinating to sometimes look at these little details of the background because they are part of the storytelling. Yes. So when he's beneath the Syrian goddess of ritual and sexuality, 
while he's reading this newspaper that says lucky to be alive and there's the painting that he's directly um behind or directly in front of that changes from scene to scene so in a lesser filmmaker that would be a mistake but it's kubrick he did that okay so i didn't catch that but i did catch the lighting cues that we got where everything at hearth and home is blue and everything that's scary and sexual and outside the norm is red and the christmas lights are rainbow and they're in all these places where the transition between home and scary yeah. or scary and home is is apparent is where we have the rainbow christmas lights and so like little things about how there's the rainbow lights in in the prostitute's house there's the you know the christmas lights in his own house when he goes home and he turns them off and plunges himself back into the blue light of his home you know all of this stuff it, it is it's, I mean, it's not subtle because I'm, I'm not that quick witted, but I, even I picked up on it. I was like, oh, and when he's yeah, walking when the guy's down chasing the- him, he's by a uh, Verona cafe. It's like, okay, you're Venice. And then touch of lace. It's the, there, there's like flashing signs almost. Right. And even like the, the bar where Nick Nightingale is playing, it's got the red and the blue and like all the mm-hmm. twinkly Christmas lights. Cause that's the transition point. Like we see a lot of the stuff with the lights as he's walking yeah. around. When uh, the woman martyrs herself, she's in this very sort of gold, like bronze statuesque with a blue background. Right. Being led down to the red carpet in the room with the red guy, the red cult leader or whoever it is so i mean the color stuff was good the music stuff was good the details added at the end we have this whole idea of hearth and home and we've got them going christmas shopping and and i I touched on it before but the commercialization everything is transactional to dr bill right not only is he bribing everybody and using his prestige as a doctor but everything is transactional his his only conversations with his daughter are about material I want this objects big bear. or yeah. i want a puppy or i want this or whatever it's extreme his stuff with yeah. his wife and is, the mother yeah. is i'm helping you with your homework and improving you as in an intellectual way well and even the nurturing the questions on the homework are two boys who have different amounts of money yeah i mean i mean so there's a lot of little tiny things again his very first line in the movie is looking for his wallet and his wife knows where it is because <laughs> she's not only nurturing but you know she keeps track it's just interesting okay so we we have a lot of stuff Kubrick added we've talked a lot about adaptation and about what the point is and if you if you add it needs to have a reason to be added and if you change it should have a reason to be changed and i feel like this adaptation took a lot of stuff that is either not there in the book, but maybe alluded to, or things that could very easily be added in, like this consumerism and the, you know, capitalism and, the, you know, more about the patriarchy, whatever. And then it really takes them to an extreme. I think the adaptation really works. This is one of those movie is better than the book because it takes the framework that the book gave us and it embellishes it and fleshes it out in a very profound way. I would absolutely agree with that. Kubrick took the essence of what is in the book and added to the atmosphere, added to the storytelling. It'll, in a way, a lot like, you know, say you get an author who has a rough draft and you give it to an editor and the editor says, okay, get rid of this, get rid of that, do this, and shapes it into the story it needed to be told. So one of the additions, and this is plot-wise, is he goes back to the apartment of the prostitute and 
her roommates there and they're kind of like they're standing really close and she's getting all like sexual flirtation and they're just like totally driving again he's because touching he, her. he is there to fuck someone okay domino's yeah. not available well you're here and she's totally down with it I'm, oh wow you feel so good and then oh by the way she's hiv positive yeah yeah it, it takes a real big turn you're yeah <laughs> But just there's that weird disconnect of that was really bizarre and uncomfortable in a good way. Mm-hmm. But it also kind of brings back the whole Venice masks, death, plague, which we're kind of living through again. Well, and in the book, she had syphilis like she, you know, or, or whatever. She'd yeah. gone off to the hospital. So it's the same basic thing. Oh, you dodged a bullet, which I think is in. There's not a whole lot of morality here, but part of it, I think, is, you know, don't fuck around. You could die <laughs> by syphilis or by cultists or your perfect because if he'd slept with Marianne, the daughter, he, he, it would have hurt him professionally. So all of these women, all of these temptations were very fraught with dangers, you know, and the fact that he didn't actually do them, not for want of trying, let's be clear, but it does help save him in a certain yeah, sex is danger, which mm-hmm. also, I mean, danger is not saying that you should go out and do fight club in order to get sexual arousal, but danger and sex are related violence and sex. He's got that taboo that's going on. He's got humiliation, adrenaline asking of him, right? There's a lot about adrenaline, adrenaline and your heart gets pumping and then other things get pumping. And you know, it's, it's, there's a reason why people like to watch scary movies and then go home and bone or while there's a lot of sex after a funeral sex, is is intrinsically tied to danger and our mortality i didn't know you went cruising at funerals <laughs> it's not what i said but <laughs> good to know where your thought was like uh, you said people have sex after funerals it's like, it's oh, like I guess a known somebody quantity. had personal no, experience no, no. with that i mean yes but also it's a known quantity like you're so glad that you're not dead you know seize the day yeah. it's it's you know people have more sex after funerals than after weddings you know that, right? That's like a thing. So I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition that these women had their masks on and yet he was more vulnerable without the mask. Oh, because he had something to lose because he's an actual person and they're just body parts. Can we talk about the bodies of these women? Okay, because I, we're getting close to wrapping up here. And I just have to say there's a lot of nudity and it is the most boring nudity I've ever seen in my entire life. It's, it's filmed to be not attractive. Like you have very beautiful women who are filmed in like the worst lighting possible. Like when they're doing the ritual scene, yeah, it's it's like this really stark white light that's on them. They're they're model perfect. I mean, well, they are, and and that's the thing. I feel like they're they're so not just objectified, but they are literally objects. They they look fake. They are all the same basic color. They're yeah. all the same basic shape. They are completely interchangeable. The Mandy's body, the woman in the in the doctor's office, all the women at the orgy. Yeah, the lighting is really stark <laughs> instead of like gentle candlelight glow to make you look more attractive. No, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's made to look harsh. And my point is that there's no variety here, like at all. Like, okay, and partly this is 1999 this is heroin chic at its finest right nobody has breasts nobody's wearing bras like everybody is just the same these this very specific type of quote-unquote beauty standards being on display here and they look like freaking mannequins all these women look like mannequins and it's so so disquieting it it's yeah yeah and you know going back to it it was so performative when they're kissing masks like you can't kiss there's no intimacy there's that separation again there's those weird boundaries 
that sex and intimacy aren't the same. And yet we have, you know, a husband and wife who are sharing bodily intimacy at the very beginning. That's not sexual. Yeah. I'm just going to one, one last little part about the bodies <laughs> is that he's obviously is trying to take the erotic out of the sexual because all the bodies are the same bodies. They're all just these blank canvases that we can project whatever onto. Again, you know, I, just I just feel some of that is Hollywood because Hollywood has one particular body shape that is supposed to be attractive. And that's what you find over and over and over again. I think that that is, is like I said, it's it was of the time, 1999, heroin chic. But I also think that it was a stylistic choice on Kubrick's part to just make it so transactional and mundane and to really be like, oh, is this sexy? Is this sexy? Are you comfortable? This is uncomfortable. Even though literally Nicole Kidman's body could have been any one of those bodies. They were all the same. And then you think, well, is it symbolic that he's seeing his wife everything? Because maybe this isn't even a real thing that's happening. I would love to have seen a version of this where it was freaking Nicole Kidman as every single body. Like that would have been su such a mind trip. Can you imagine? Yeah. How fucked up that would have been. <laughs> like, and you know. Okay, Kaylia, that was a smart editorial decision. It would have been if they had done it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I, I, I'm totally behind that just because it is a mind fuck to do it that way. It, it, would, have been, it, would, it would have been better, but probably a lot more difficult to do that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And like all of his use of mirrors and doubling, what if when he kissed Marianne, he looked, his eyes were open because he's not into it. And from behind, Marianne looks like his wife in a mirror or something. You know what I mean? Like you could have yeah. really messed with every single thing. Oh, there are I, tiny little changes. Like I said, there's the picture that and when he's in the cafe, it changes. You could do like little mind fucks like that and have people go, holy shit, wait, wait what? What? That would have been cool. It would have definitely that would been, have enhanced the you know, dream aspect. It would have made it more of a thriller because I will tell you, this is supposed to be an erotic thriller and I didn't find it either erotic or thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and I think that part of that is just, it was marketed maybe not quite right, but it just, I, it, I think it's it, artistic, not the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and the only scary part was when he was like getting followed by that guy but because the music was so extreme and over the top, I was like just so annoyed by the music that I couldn't really get into the scariness. And then later on, Ziegler was like, oh yeah, I'm the one who had you followed, which kind of takes away. So that's another big change. I think, we, I mean, we're, we're getting close to our end of our time. People are going to stop listening, but yes. Okay. So one of the main changes is that Ziegler calls him over in the movie and has this whole conversation. He's like, I'm going to explain everything to you, blah, 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 blah. And personally, I kind of wish that scene wasn't there. Because it's so much better to have you like wonder and think that he's in actual danger and that there might actually be consequences, but and to, to feel uncomfortable than to have, you know, this guy say, I'm going to try to explain everything to you in this weird way that, you know, maybe you believe, maybe you don't. So, Kalia, will this be your new favorite Christmas film? <laughs> I thought it was a brilliant idea to make it in Christmas because again, like I've said, there's consumerism. There's this whole idea of family. We have almost a Scrooge Grinch thing where one night's adventures like change your whole life. I do like the, just the saturation of colors is beautiful. The, the lighting was really cool. I liked it. I, that's a Kubrick style thing that I like that he uses the, the quote unquote natural, you know, in universe light, as opposed to lighting, you know, rooms and stuff. And I just think I've always thought that that's cool. Oh, and you wanted to talk about your degrees of fidelity. Yes, I did. Okay. So lust, lust is a theme here, right? And I read this interesting thing that said that lust is, is a mix of envy and fantasy. And I thought, well, that 
yeah, that kind of works. And that's basically what both this book and this movie are like the, the, you know, envy and fantasy, fantasy, envy, envy being like that jealousy, but also like that, like that control aspect and the fantasy of what is, and it's not a lot. Okay. Sort of lust is desire. I think desire is part of it, but I think that you can desire something, but when you lust after it, I think it's rooted in that somebody else has it and you want it. Because, you know, desire to me doesn't have the same negative connotation as lust does. And so I like the idea of, of envy being part of, of the definition. So, you know, whatever works like for that. you, but it works for me. So what is cheating and what is not cheating? This is a conversation that every relationship should have, <laughs> no matter what kind of relationship, really, um, because then you set up your parameters. And obviously not everybody is as woke as myself, <laughs> but they should be. So I feel like in the novel, the fact that he gets so jealous makes perfect sense. We've already talked about the, the culture, the society that they're in, the, the limitations, et cetera. Okay. The fact though, that in 1999, this couple has this conversation and he gets so jealous means seems to me that they've never had like an actual conversation and their child is like seven years old. He tells Nick Nightingale they've been together nine years. And I feel like, my God, you got married in 1990 and you never talked about any of this. It not only stretches credulity a little bit, but it makes me less sympathetic to them because a conversation about monogamy or about what constitutes cheating or, you know, oh, I noticed somebody checking you out, you know, and I, I'm going to tease you about it or I'm going to get mad about it or I'm whatever would have come up at some point. But these two people act like this is the first conversation they've ever had about these concepts. And that was very frustrating to me. Some people think that when you fantasize about somebody else, that that constitutes a cheating. Other people say, no, your brain is your own brain. You're allowed to think whatever you want to think. It's when you act on something that that constitutes a cheating. I am not here to tell you where that line is because I'm not you. I think that line is different for every person and every relationship. And that's why people should talk to one another. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with consent, personally. So you can have a polyamorous relationship that is not cheating. And you can have a polyamorous relationship where there is cheating because you have to consent to your boundaries and be respectful. Yep. Well, and you can only get consent if you have communication. Yeah. Right? So like it totally makes sense why in the novel, they wouldn't have had that. And Eyes Wide Shut, you're kind of looking a little old fashioned that you didn't even have the talk about exclusivity and what that means. Yeah. So things did change a lot when the internet came about is like, well, is sexting somebody cheating? Is light flirtation cheating or is it just you're allowed to flirt as long as it doesn't go more than that? Yeah. And it just, it goes to communication. But in 1999, we already had chat rooms, you know, you had internet message boards of, of stuff you had. But that's when this conversation was happening about is that right. cheating or not? Yeah. So and people so, have to kind of work things out as they do. And I feel like since we've decided to make this movie in 1999, be contemporary and not set it in 1969, you know, which they could... Kubrick could have set this movie in 1969. What a different movie that would have been. But what an interesting concept. 1959. Take a look at that because then you could have really kept with like that, uh, the, the idea of this heteronormative thing. Or you could have set it out. in Whoville where they have key parties. Oh my God. My point is that they chose to make it contemporary, but then they didn't acknowledge that we are changing morals and mores of, about sex taboos were in fact changing and that maybe we should acknowledge that with these people who are we talking are because evolving 
Right. And, and this would have been the, the place to do that. You know, if he had said you know, his, his jealousy at the end, if she'd said, you can't be jealous because you can't control my thoughts, you know, you're, you're acting out because you were jealous that I had a thought and that's fucked up. Like that could have been a really good conversation and it would have mirrored society and been asked for like all of those things. But instead we get her being like, yeah, okay. I guess we both like, it's fine. You can't wrap up everything in like one night or whatever. And you know, a dream is never just a dream. Um, okay, sure. But we're not going to actually get into what the dream meant or didn't mean, or no, we're just going to acknowledge that. And like the last line is let's go fuck. Yeah, because that's going to solve all of our problems again, because she is a sexual object that is there for him to use. And that is her entire role is to be his wife, his sexual object, his thing. And that's how she's going to fix their marriage is by being really good at this one thing that she gets to do for him that he's not supposed to get to do with anybody else. Ah, (laughs) grumble, grumble, grumble. So what's that old say? Like um, a husband wants... A lady in the living room, an economist in the kitchen, and a whore in the bedroom. Oh my god! <laughs> you haven't heard that? I've heard versions of that, but that yeah, I never heard the part with the economist in the kitchen. <laughs> oh yeah, That's and then hilarious. the you know, the the additional add to that is when you get a lady in the kitchen, an economist in the bedroom, and a whore in the living room. Uh, well, that would be topsy turvy. I want to know who's hanging out in the backyard. Hmm. <laughs> Okay. Party with them. Yeah, right. We're like, get this heteronormative bullshit. I'm just going to be back here in the hot tub. Okay, so, Jennifer. Just I think it's time. Is this book worth your time? Is this movie worth your time? I think they're absolutely worth your time. I won't be rewatching the film. I probably won't reread the book. But it brings up interesting problems interesting discussions. Okay. I actually wrote down my thoughts. The book is of its time and you really have to like that style of writing to enjoy it. It is not for the casual reader, despite the fact that it is short. I am not sure what it offers modern readers in terms of character theme or plot besides being a time capsule. The characters don't age particularly well. The plot is murky with a few important unanswered questions. The themes are frayed and archaic. They've been explored better in other works, I'm sure of it, but I am glad that I read it because it was interesting. Yeah, I I think it's totally worth your time if you're interested in the themes or that style of writing or that time period in history, then then by all means, I think you should read it. As for the movie, it's a Kubrick film. So if you're a film buff, it might be required viewing. It's well-made. It definitely evokes feelings. It was not enjoyable to watch. It was very disquieting. And here's the thing, I'm not going to be haunted by this movie, but I was also, I wasn't titillated and I'm not confused. I think I'm just kind of apathetic. I'm glad that I have a much healthier relationship with my spouse and the people in this movie. And at this point, if you haven't seen it, I'm not really sure that you should do anything besides follow your instincts. Because if you weren't drawn to it, then maybe there's a reason. It is very well made, but this is not a feel good movie. And it, it just, it, and it is so, it's two hours and 40 minutes. I mean, it is a it takes you practically as long to watch it as you do to read it. Like, it's just, it's very, very long. And it doesn't need to be so long. It's fascinating to me because they didn't pad it overly much. It's not like they added like a couple of side plots. It's known for being a slow filmmaker. Yeah, that's the thing. That's my point. Like, there's no side plots here. Like, There's not a whole lot of added padding, but it it moves slow. We sit with things. There's 20 minutes of like the world's most boring orgy. And 
you know, it is a little bit of a risk to take your main Tom Cruise guy and put him in a mask for so long. This mask was hella creepy. I hate masks. I hate dolls. I hate the whole thing. I don't know if this tells us anything about 1999. I don't think it does. So let's talk about some of the trivia because we have some good trivia. Is there Star Trek trivia? There is, of course. (laughs) This movie was like the longest movie. Like this, it was 400 days. It took them so long to make this movie. That's a little bit. Kubrick died shortly after it was made. Apparently six days, which means that he didn't get a chance to re-edit it. And normally he re-edited things all the way up to the very last minute. So this is actually Guinness Book World Record. It, it, you know, it filmed for 15 months. Oh, by the way, it was Kate Blanchett was the voice of the mystery woman. So that's interesting. I would have never guessed that. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, so when they decided to not make the main character Jewish, they wanted a Harrison Ford type goy, is what Kubrick said, which is where we get Hartford, which is the Dr. Bill is from Harrison Ford. <laughs> he considered making it a sex comedy with a wild and somber streak starring Steve Martin or Woody Allen. Oh my God, I'm so glad that it's not Steve Martin or Woody Allen. <laughs> Say what you will. Like, I think Tom Cruise is a fine actor and this was interesting. But of course, as you know, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise were married during this and apparently Kubrick really wanted them to be kind of at each other's throats. So he did things like they had to sleep in on set in that bedroom. That was like where they slept at night. That was their actual place to sleep during the filming. They, he banned each other from the sets for different scenes. So Tom Cruise wasn't allowed to be anywhere near or see any of the dailies or they didn't do dailies, but any of the stuff from the scenes of Nicole Kidman and the Naval officer. It's interesting because Kubrick was really into, like you said, detail oriented, but he would film things over and over and over again. There's a, there's a classic story of he filmed Tom Cruise walking through a door. That was the extent of the shot. 95 times just walking through a door and so you get at the end that tom cruise is kind of flat in this character this is not he's not a, i just said before i think he's a fine actor i don't think he's a very good actor in this but then i wonder if it's not really him if you've done a scene 95 times and they choose the take where you look like you're not doing a very good job that's obviously a choice by the director right so like maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Um, I just thought that that yeah, was he really... can give a good performance. Yeah, he really can. And so it's not here though. And I have to wonder how much of that was him and how much of that was Cooper keeping the shots where he wasn't doing good for some particular reason. We already don't like the character of Dr. Bill, but like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. So here we go. Here is our Star Trek trivia. I have a bit of space trivia. Space trivia? So as we all know, Stanley Kubrick was hired to fake the moon landing, but because he is such a perfectionist, he did have to like actually go to the moon to film it. Wow. (laughs) Well done you. Okay. (laughs) Um, Starter trivia and Alson Alan Cumming trivia. Alan Cumming is the best. I love, and he was such a, he was a funky little character in this. This fabulous hotel desk clerk. I love Alan Cumming. He's amazing. And he's kind of flirting in a way oh, as oh, well because, as being uncomfortable. And dude, just- he's flirting because every everybody in this movie is horny. This movie is like New York is horny. That is what this movie should have been called because everybody is horny. They're either horny for Bill or they're horny for Bill. Like yeah, literally. It kind of felt like, you know, even, Tom Cruise was even Stanley then, Kubrick's Mary Sue where everybody has to be attracted to him. Oh my God. Even the, the waitress at the, co- he's like, he goes to find Nightingale at the bar. He's like, oh, 
Oh my God, this bar is closed in the middle of the day. Grumble, grumble. I'll go next door to this diner, chat up a waitress who not only knows Nick Nightingale, but knows where he's staying. So obviously they're getting on, on it. So, you know, like there's sex happening there so that then I can go find Nick Nightingale's hotel and then the hotel clerk can flirt with him. Everybody's horny in this movie. Everybody is horny in this movie. So tell okay. me about the amazing Alan Cumming. Okay, so the Who amazing- Who is not coming in this film. Oh, oh. God. So he is in the, <laughs> he is in the running- for Quentin Tarantino's con, because Quentin Tarantino might be making the next Star Trek movie in 2023. We'll see if that happens, but he is in the running to be con. So that would be a different kind of con for sure. That would. I'm not sure that they would make him wear that weird shirt with the pecs. Ah, who knows? I mean, who knows? Okay, but here's our other bit of Star Trek trivia. The daughter in this movie, Helena, okay? She was played by Madison Edgington. And she played Madison Picard in the Star Trek movie, Star Trek Generations. She was the daughter of Jean-Luc Picard during his Nexus experience when he had the whole also holiday themed hallucination where he was like, oh, look at me in my holiday with my children and my family. And it's very Dickens-esque and we're all going to eat together. And like, there's a Christmas tree and it's beautiful. And this was his fantasy, his version of heaven. And in this version of heaven, which takes place at Christmas, he had a daughter named Madison, who was played by Helena, who is the daughter in Eyes Wide Shut, which is also a holiday movie. Not a Christmas movie, but a holiday movie, because it very clearly takes place at the holidays, but it's not a Christmas movie, because it doesn't have the Christmas movie themes going on, I don't think. Do you agree with me? No, we could do our Die Hard checklist or just watch you know, the Die Hard podcast. Yes, yeah, or listen, listen to the Die Hard podcast. Yeah. I would yeah. say this is not a Christmas movie because it's not a Christmas movie. The end. Die Hard, by the way, is, but this one is not. Okay, so <laughs> that was fun. I hope you had as much fun listening to it as we did making it. Like and subscribe and leave a review if you can. Have a happy holiday. Be very safe. Enjoy all the alcohol and booze and sex you can. <laughs> that about sums this up. I hope everybody has a wonderful New Year's and thank you so much.